Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you live your faith in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio today is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Cross. Hey, Kit. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in once again. We have a wonderful show ahead, and we hope that you really enjoy it, and we hope you're having a blessed day. You can catch the Bridge Builder program right here on your favorite Catholic radio station each week at this same time. But if you miss an episode or want to catch up on past episodes, just visit us at mncatholic.org podcast. You can also find the Bridge Builder on your favorite podcast app. Each week we bring you great interviews on the Bridge Builder show on some of the major issues impacting how we live our faith in public life. We also answer your questions in our mailbag segment. You can email those to us at show at mncatholic.org or contact us on social media. And it wouldn't be the bridge builder if we didn't provide you with practical ways that you can start laying the bricks that will build the bridge between faith and public life. On today's show, we're talking about the ethics of a COVID-19 vaccine. We've heard a lot about Operation Warp Speed from President Trump, and we're glad to have Dr. John D. Camillo with us to unpack some of the issues related to the vaccine rollout and how it will be distributed. In our mailbag segment, we're covering a question about public policy proposals that are working toward creating racial equity in our society. And finally, stick around for the Bricklayer segment where we have details on how you can prayerfully prepare for Election Day. We're now joined on the line by Dr. John DiCamillo. He has been a full-time staff ethicist at the National Catholic Bioethics Center since 2011. He lives in Pennsylvania with his wife and children. His work includes moral analysis of Catholic health care affiliations and of health insurance plans and claims. He provides ethics education and consultation services to individuals and organizations through the NCB Center. Welcome to the program, Dr. DiCamillo. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure to be here, Jason. We've heard a lot about vaccines, and people are certainly desiring to know what that's going to look like, how it's going to work, because at least here in Minnesota, there's a sense that we're not going to be able to open up businesses and activities and many things until there is a vaccine. Whether or not you agree with that, that's the perspective of the policymakers in charge, at least at this point. So the vaccine takes on a a particular importance in terms of trying to bring some normalcy back to our activities. But uh, first, we might want to start with how the church thinks about vaccines vaccines generally. What are the general principles that the Catholic Church applies and considers when talking about the morality of vaccines and how they're distributed and whether or not we have an obligation to receive them? Sure. So first of all, I guess we would start by saying that the Church certainly considers the vaccines to be a good. Uh, In other words, they're a sort of preventative medical intervention. And so in that regard, just like any medical intervention, we would promote those to the extent that they are helpful and beneficial and that the the goods that they propose outweigh the harms and risks that they might entail. So first of all, any vaccine is to be sort of viewed from this standpoint of um, if it can help and if it won't cause too many risks or harms, we certainly want to go ahead and, and promote that or make take advantage of it uh, when and where that's possible. And we also recognize that in this way, it has the additional unique element of contributing to the common good of the society by its public health value for, for other people. So uh, receiving a vaccination protects not only myself first and foremost, but also others around me. Um, then there are, with regard to vaccines, some particular concerns that often arise with regard to the development uh, of vaccines. Uh, And so, for example, there are several vaccines on the market that uh, have been developed and are manufactured through the use of human cell lines that may have been derived from elective abortions in the past. 
So this presents a sort of new or, or unique element of vaccines from a moral standpoint that we have to consider uh, in addition to just the basics of, hey, you know, risks and benefits. Can you unpack the question of the ethical obligation to receive a vaccine that has been created with the stem cell lines from aborted fetuses? There seems to be some confusion on this point. Yeah, absolutely. And so, again, this is a question that's been around for some time. It's not new with COVID. And so the the church's teaching on this particular point is that if there's a vaccine that has been developed and is manufactured through the use of these problematic cell lines, um, it may still be utilized by the end user, the the child, the parent, the, the person who's immunocompromised who may need to be vaccinated for medical reasons, if there is not a better reasonable alternative available, and if there are uh, morally proportionate reasons for doing so. In other words, you have a serious reason that you need to be vaccinated, uh, and therefore that could be a justifying cause for going ahead with this vaccination despite its immoral origins. And then there's a consistent duty, of course, to advocate for uh, vaccines that are developed in an ethical way, right? Absolutely, yes. That goes hand in hand with it. So oftentimes today we hear, in, especially in Catholic circles among parents, that concerns about vaccines and, and they've embraced some of the anti-vaccine literature, but that often comes in conflict with, for example, Catholic school policies uh, regarding the vaccination of all children. But people have a conscientious objection to using some vaccines uh, based on their own prudential judgment. When church authority and personal conscience come into conflict, how does that question best resolved? That's a tough question um, in the sense that we we have multiple issues going on with with vaccination questions in particular, apart from the church's clear teaching, let's say, at the level of principle, which we just talked about. Um, And then when you want to implement that in practice with regard to, as you said, a school policy or um, something to this effect, uh, now you're bringing something that's a general principle down through a practical judgment to a concrete area. And there can be differences of opinion and of judgment, for example, from one diocese to another or from one school district to another as to whether and to what extent it's appropriate to require certain vaccinations. Essentially, you have a question of fact about, you know, is there a serious enough public health risk to warrant requiring a vaccine, for example, of all children attending the school. And so in those cases, I mean, obviously, the the best resolution that we want is to say, well, first of all, the authority, the school administrators, the diocese that's making the decision is hopefully doing it in a well-informed way with uh, sound science and with reference to public health authorities and other reliable sources when they decide, hey, this is a serious enough risk that we're going to require this. And then we also want there to be an adequate attention to the objections uh, that individual families may have when they have a well-formed conscience following church teaching and are expressing an opposition, perhaps, for example, on the grounds that some of these vaccines have been developed through the use of abortion-derived cell lines. So that's the answer, in a sense, is to say, hey, we want to be able to thread that needle of, okay, here is a public health good that we're recognizing and requiring and trying to protect everybody, and yet we want to allow for certain exemptions for reasons of conscience that may uh, enable us to respect that, that individual's situation as well. 
people have all kinds of theories about vaccines these days, and uh, oftentimes it seems what's troubling about the question is is that ultimately the church does have jurisdiction over our bodies <laughs> and how we use them, and and uh, that seems to create some conflicts, especially at that level of schools and vaccination policy. So thanks for unpacking that for us. My next question, Dr. Camillo, speaks a little bit more directly to the COVID vaccinations and the questions surrounding those. It's my understanding that five of the eight vaccinations that have been developed in conjunction with the White House's Operation Warp Speed are being done uh, in an ethical way. What what are you seeing on the ground as far as how those are being developed and what concerns are being raised thus far? Yeah, that sounds accurate to me. That's the same information I'm seeing. I mean, there is, I would say, some dispute about some of the particulars of maybe even one or two of those five that have a question about for example, the distinction between the level of um, just development, broadly speaking, versus actual manufacture of the vaccine. And so there are questions about whether, for example, some of the abortion-derived cell lines were used in the design, even though the pharmaceutical company that's developing it may not have actually used the cell line itself, but did it rely upon, for example, collaboration with other organizations that did use the cell line or information that they found out from using that cell line in its own design? Now, that's a controversial, factual question, but I would say that where we are now, as far as the best information I'm seeing, we're seeing here at NCBC on our end, we would be in agreement with that notion that five of the eight certainly are not using the abortion-derived cell lines in the manufacturing of the vaccine even though one or two may have relied upon information in the development stage or in certain testing aspects. What happens, Dr. DiCamillo, if the one that actually works through all the trials and the one that's put out into production in the first place is one of the ones that is developed from abortion-derived stem cell lines or uh, uh, tissue? What do we do in that case? What's the ethical calculus there? So if that happens, we're going to have a very difficult situation from a conscience standpoint, uh, because basically, you know, if the first vaccine out the door is one of the ones that clearly uses the abortion-derived cell lines in the manufacture of the vaccine, um, we're talking about a situation in which many people are going to rightfully have ethical concerns and objections to that. And I would say that you are, you know, in a situation where you're going to need to respect those conscientious objections on the one hand. And on the other hand, you're going to want to ensure that we get ethical alternatives available quickly right after that. So I guess the good news is, on, on the one hand, we're probably going to have a question of allocation initially where we're not going to have enough vaccines um, right out the door. And so I don't think that we're going to be dealing with a situation where everybody's going to suddenly have to get this vaccine, but certain people will be allowed to or they'll be offered this vaccine. And if the first one out the door is ethically problematic from that standpoint, then there's hope that, hey, maybe the second one or the third one will be one of the ethically sound ones. And so by the time, you know, as the the vaccine access is expanding and more come on the market, hopefully at least one, if not more, will be sound alternatives before it becomes a question of everybody needing to get one. Let's just put aside and bracket the question of the development and whether or not uh, particular vaccines connected to abortion in some way. 
But there are all sorts of other prudential objections one might have to receiving, being the end user, as you call it, of a vaccine, uh, especially given my understanding that there's never been a vaccine developed for another coronavirus strain. This one's been rushed to market. Objections and concerns are being aired all all across the ideological spectrum, not just from Catholics. So in, in that case, you know, that there's a widely available vaccine, but people are concerned for a number of other prudential reasons. Are those legitimate reasons not to get the vaccine or how does that decision calculus work? Sure, that that certainly factors in, and I would say is going to be a a very big factor, particularly initially uh, in these early years here, um, if and when we do get one of those vaccines and and until there is a a much more stable, uh, consistent analysis of all the data with regard to the whole COVID situation and vaccines in particular. So so basically, yes, the fact that this is going to be something novel, the fact that there's been some rushing to market, as it were, certain stages of testing may have been skipped over, like animal testing, and the fact that, you know, we're dealing with a a series of unknowns, even with regard to efficacy, for example. I mean, one of the the key factors for informed consent, and this is just going back to that basic point, again, apart from any question of abortion-derived development, we're talking about just basic any therapeutic treatment or preventative measure weighing the benefits versus the burdens. And that, that's part of what we call informed consent. You know, you need to be able to receive the information from your medical provider about what are the risks, what are the benefits, et cetera, and weigh that against what may be the harms and, and so forth. So if you're talking about a situation where it's a novel vaccine, it's the first one ever for coronavirus, it's just come on the market, and you're talking about how do we even measure efficacy, for example, because, you know, when you measure efficacy for something like the flu, which is what this would be analogous to, you kind of you have to have a reference point of a population and, and that's been generally infected by it and how much that's reduced by when you introduce the vaccine. But we're not going to have anywhere near those numbers to be able to determine efficacy prior to its implementation. So we're going to have, you know, of course, with the clinical trials, the phase three testing will give us something to go on, but that's not yet going to be a huge level of the population. So we may be dealing with something that's, you know, at best, let's say 50 percent effective. And, you know, if that's the case, that's a, that's a valid consideration. Hey, here's this new thing. It has all sorts of unknowns. It's passed, passed some basic testing, but it's essentially in large measure still experimental because it's just new on the market here. Nobody's ever seen it before. And it may only be minimally effective. So is it worth it for me just from a benefits and burden standpoint to go get this vaccination given all the unknowns about it and the including the unknowns about its efficacy and what other long-term side effects there may be? And even considerations about will I need a follow-up, a booster? You know, some of the, depending on which one gets to market, several of these may need booster shots and then you're going to have questions about that, too. Are people who object to receiving such a vaccine, you know, part of the, what they call the economists call a free rider problem in the sense that they're able to access the benefits of widely available vaccines while not embracing the burdens? Is there an ethical problem in making that choice? I would say there's not if the, the rationale for the refusal is effectively based in the individual's assessment of their health situation and their immediate community, um, and they have sound reasons to say, well, I don't, I don't have enough evidence that this is going to be beneficial or I don't have enough evidence that it's not going to be harmful. There may, in fact, be the fact that they're going to benefit from some level of immunity of those around them. But the point I would make is that it's, that's not, if that's not the reason for their decision, 
then they're not effectively free riders. In other words, if somebody, if somebody says, morally speaking, hey, you know what, I'm just not going to get this because everybody else is doing it, and so I'll be protected from that, so I'm not going to bother, then you'd be the moral agent is actually you know, proposing that as, as part of the, the decision-making process. But if it's really just about, hey, do I need it, and what are the risks and benefits, and you know what, I'm, I'm going to decline it because the risks and harms outweigh the benefits for now, then nothing has entered into that process of, hey, let me just take advantage of this. So there's a difference between a de facto situation and an actual moral or ethical weight to it. We're speaking with Dr. John D. Camilla from the National Catholic Bioethics Center about the ethical rollout of vaccines, including the COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, Dr. D. Camillo, it's not likely that the government will have to mandate these vaccines, probably because there will be a pretty strong demand for them. But uh, economics is all about the allocation of scarce resources, and for a time, the vaccines might be somewhat scarce. How do we make decisions about who gets who's in first in line uh, in the receipt of such a vaccine? So we're going to want to consider first and foremost what is the the best uh, effect that this is going to have from a clinical standpoint and a population standpoint. So we're going to look at the individual benefits and the population benefits of where we distribute this vaccine. And that's going to be a question of, for example, geography. could be areas that are higher density, areas that are lower density uh, are going to be subject to different levels of transmissibility of the disease. Uh, so that's going to be one, you know, key factor of this. Hey, we want to concentrate as much as we can a certain priority on areas where there's high transmissibility due to population density or other factors. And another is going to be the severity of disease. In other words, those people who are most vulnerable to morbidity and mortality who are likely to die if they get the disease, they're going to have to be prioritized as well. Um, but it's going to be a bit more complicated because you'll have factors such as how effective is that vaccine going to be for the particular group? So, for example, you know, some of the people in the high vulnerability category who might have severe disease may also be in a category where they're least likely to actually benefit from the vaccine directly. In other words, you know, for example, a population that is more, uh, has a weaker immune system may be less likely to mount an immune response to the vaccine to begin with and if the vaccine is minimally effective to begin with, it may be doing almost nothing for that person, as opposed to giving it to somebody else who may mount an effective response and then effectively become more immune than that individual. So it'll get complex, but I would say that the basic principle is going to be we want to reduce the high rates of transmission by hitting those high transmissibility populations and areas, and you want to prioritize people who are most vulnerable with likelihood of death or, or serious disease, and you also want to give priority to people who, in light of that transmissibility factor, may be in professions that are at high risk, like healthcare workers themselves on the front lines, or even people who may be working in essential public areas, like in supermarkets or areas where the public is accessed, et cetera. So those are the points. You know, high transmissibility and severity of disease are going to be the, the fundamental guideposts, let's say, but there will be many specific factors that need, need to be worked out. Dr. DiCamillo, on a more general level, you've talked about the importance of not equating the public health uh, with the common good. What do you mean by that? So we have to be clear that public health is not the ultimate good. 
uh, for a society. It is certainly a good, it's a particular good, uh, but the common good understood is the, uh, the good of the whole society or the good of the society as a whole, which means we have to consider not just how many people are sick and how severely sick are they and how many people are dying, for example, but we also have to consider what is the, the vibrancy, the cultural life of that population? What is the social life of that population? Is there harmony and unity uh, among that population? Are they living, in a sense, a, a civic life that is ennobling of the human person? So that's what we mean when we talk about the, the whole good of the society, that complete sense of the common good. Um, the public health is a piece of that, as it were, but it can't be. We can't reduce the common good to simply number of you know people who are dying or the number of people with severe disease and the way that we can impact those numbers because then we lose sight of those great goods that come from the human soul the human spirit and that life of yearning for needing social dynamic interaction and then of course ultimately the very highest good god himself toward which a society should be directed and and so those are the, that's the big picture of needing to respect the common good in other words, the, the limiting the spread of infection can't be the only and overriding consideration among all other considerations and goods. Absolutely. One final question, Dr. DiCamillo, is the importance of having a certain generosity of spirit and presumption of goodwill among people who have different opinions and make prudential judgments about some of these questions. Can you say more about that? Sure. I think that uh, with an issue as complex as this, with as many nuances and unknowns as there are, a huge, huge part of whatever we do as individuals and as, as a society is going to be based on individual prudential judgments of people in a community as well as leaders of those communities. And I think that we need to take that into account when we judge how other people, you know, we think about how other people are acting and not try to presume that you know our view is the only view because people have different circumstances and uh, different situations so when you have a vaccine question for example somebody might say look you know i understand the church teaches we're allowed to get a vaccine even if it was developed through immoral means and it's really important for me and my family to be protected from this illness because we're in that high risk group and so that is the best way for them to go about protecting health and contributing to the common good in that public health sense. They're going to go ahead and do the vaccination. Somebody else may say, you know what, I don't have that situation. I'm generally a strong, healthy individual. My, my contacts, people I'm interacting with are not high risk or high vulnerability for the most part. And so I'm going to make a strong stand here to the witness of human life and say, no, you know, I'm going to re refuse this vaccine because it was developed in this immoral way and make clear that that's why and demand alternatives and maybe wait for that sound alternative to come down the line. And we can't then point the finger and say, oh, that, you know, that person shouldn't have gotten the vaccine because, you know, they're not giving a strong witness the value of life or, you know, that person's being irresponsible by not getting vaccinated. You know, that that's not helpful. It's divisive. Uh, and actually it, it feeds sort of the damage to that common good in the holistic sense that I was also talking about, right? Like we're being sort of uncharitable to one another with respect to the legitimate, well-formed reasons someone may have for saying, I'm going to make a different decision on this particular question that's very complex. 
We've had the blessing today to be joined by Dr. John D. Camilla from the National Catholic Bioethics Center. NCBC is a great resource for individuals, families, dioceses, church institutions, and in making ethical decisions related to health care. He's helped us unpack some of the ethical considerations with regard to vaccines generally and a COVID vaccine specifically. Dr. D. Camilla, thanks for being on the program today. Where can people go to find out more about NCB Center and its good work? Uh, you can go to our website, www.ncbcenter.org. Dr. D. Camilla, thanks for joining us on the Bridge Builder program. God bless your work. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks so much. God bless you, too. And we'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. Welcome back to the Bridge Builder Program, where we help you connect your Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now it's time to open our mailbag and hear what comments and questions you've been sending our way. Kit, what's in today's mailbag? Yes, yeah, so earlier this fall, the Minnesota Catholic Conference hosted an online webinar. It was entitled, Open Wide Our Hearts, The Catholic Church Confronts Racism. And we received a question that was following up on that discussion from an attendee. That attendee states, one proposal that was mentioned spoke of savings accounts as a way of attending private schools. Given the documented wealth gap for black Americans, it would seem this proposal would do little to provide opportunity for those who are already in a group with less savings. Jason, could you help break this down, maybe share with us how this proposal addresses some of the systemic issues that this person's talking about? Thanks, Kit. First of all, I'd really encourage people to check out that webinar, and it's online on our website, mncatholic.org slash openwideourhearts. Uh, a really fantastic program featuring uh, black Catholic leaders talking about the importance of confronting racism and how the church can do it, pointing us a way forward. One of the things that we did include as part of the program, however, was a discussion of the Minnesota Catholic Conference policy initiatives aimed at fostering racial justice and combating racial inequalities and economic disparities. For listeners of this program, one of the things that we've talked about on a consistent basis is education reform and creating more school choice. So what was talked about on that program was the importance of the Opportunity Scholarship Tax Credit. And so what how that functions is that the tax credit is provided to individuals and businesses and organizations to stimulate their giving to scholarship-granting organizations, such as like the AIM Higher Foundation here in the Twin Cities, uh, organizations that give out scholarships to low-income families so that they can attend non-public schools and Catholic schools, of course, as well. And so it doesn't really depend on the family's income. In fact, uh, low-income families families and middle-income families are the ones who are eligible for these opportunity scholarships. So it doesn't really matter family income. They're actually targeted toward low-income families in particular. So it doesn't require uh, a family to have any particular savings. In fact, it's it's oriented to families who don't have savings. Now, even more uh, uh, thoroughgoing proposal besides the tax credit scholarship program would be something like an education savings account. And that's where the government creates, takes the dollars it would spend normally on education, puts it like on a debit card, gives it to families so that they can use it directly for uh, educational resources that best serve them. That's an even more proactive approach to addressing educational disparities, uh, but one that um, is we're still working to build consensus around. So for now, the specific proposal is the Opportunity Scholarship Tax Credit. We advocate for that in conjunction with our partners at Opportunity for All Kids. So if people want to learn more about that program, they can go to opportunityforallkids.org. Again, Opportunity for all kids.org. 
Wonderful. Thanks for helping us better understand what some of those different proposals are. And we always want to leave our listeners with some practical takeaways, ways that they can start building the bridge between faith and public life. What do you have in this week's Bricklayer segment? So with Election Day just around the corner, there's still time for you to join us in praying our election novena. Starting on Sunday, October 25th, you can find daily posts on the Minnesota Catholic Conference Facebook page and on Twitter. Each day we provide a reflection, a prayer, and discernment questions on different policy areas that our vote can impact, including religious liberty, life and bioethics, immigration, the economy, education, health care, and more. You can find all of these resources, plus a video for each day of the novena, on our website, mncatholic.org novena. You can view more of our election resources, including learning who is on your ballot by visiting mncatholic.org slash election. So we have an election resource page that's kind of one-stop shopping. You can uh, find links to your sample ballots to see who's running in your area, resources for forming your conscience and informing your vote. Uh, it has uh, resources regarding permissible parish activities in advance of an election, but I think we'd really in this program highlight the importance of praying in advance of this election. Obviously, it's going to be very divisive. It already is very divisive. A lot of people are going to be upset no matter what the outcome is and whenever that outcome is decided. So our nation certainly needs prayers right now, and uh, we can't underscore the importance of prayer and the pursuit of holiness, really, because there's there's nothing out there that can't be solved fundamentally with a return to Christ who alone can restore all things in his name and holiness in our hearts. If uh, all Catholics attended Mass regularly, uh, performed the corporal works of mercy, doubled down on the life of uh, the Spirit, uh, loving God and loving our neighbor, then a lot of problems that plague us in which we have anxiety about uh, would be best addressed. So it always starts in prayer, but we do have, of course, those resources on our website, mncatholic.org, so that we can do the very practical work of starting to choose leaders who support human dignity and the common good. Again, that those resources can be found on our website, mncatholic.org. That's all the time we have for today, but listeners, you can be part of our mailbag segment. Just send any of your comments or questions to show at mncatholic.org or connect with us on social media. Then tune in in the following weeks to see if we include your question or comment. Remember, you can catch up on past episodes online at mncatholic.org slash podcast or search for the Bridge Builder podcast on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for tuning in today to The Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week with another great guest, more of your comments and questions, and a new way for you to build bridges between faith and public life. I'm Jason Atkins, and for Kit Cross of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, thanks for listening, and God bless your day.